0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Human Touch. I'm Lou Solomon. And together with a wonderful group of human beings, we run a communications company called Interact Studio. We're so happy you're here. Those of you in the Zoom room and also those of you watching the live stream on YouTube, welcome, welcome. Uh, So happy to have you with us. We are uh, awaiting on our main guest, but in the meantime, I'd really like to introduce our the host of our interview uh, today, which is Tim Miner. You know, Tim is co-founder, along with his partner, Matt Olin, of Charlotte is Creative. And if you don't know, Charlotte is Creative is a nonprofit uh, that advocates for creatives of all shapes and sizes as entrepreneurs, and that's exactly what they are, and they pair them with businesses that in partnership can serve each other and of course creatives are what will attract great unique growth to Charlotte so they've they've been doing this 24-7 behind the scenes you might know them from uh, Creative Mornings fame but actually that's only a small part of what they do but at the same time everybody's always interested in that so Tim I understand we've had a recent a communication about a live Creative Mornings coming back to us.
1: Yeah, this is. Uh, thank. By the way, thanks for that. That really kind introduction, Lou. Um, this is. <laughs> we got the message we've been waiting for, for eighteen long months, which is that uh, Creative Mornings is uh, the office in Brooklyn is comfortable with uh, reasonable accommodations and the responsibility to uh, having live meetings again so matt olin who's my uh, creative partner he's actually on the call he's on the zoom right now but he's driving um we are in the process with our team of figuring out what a what a live creative mornings looks like um we've not missed a, a month we've gone on zoom and done what i guess 18 straight zooms which have been tremendous but we're ready to hug people and high five and and you know do coffee toasts and and just have a little bit of spontaneity that only a live event you know can can offer you so
0: yeah yeah we miss it too we miss the live music we're ready we're ready absolutely
1: i, I think what we we had lunch uh about a week and a half ago with with a friend and what is you know easy to miss i guess when um you know when we're all busy and we're, we're thinking well what's been lost with some live events. And, um, you know, this guy was talking about just the ability to bump into random strangers or to make a friend in a in a line grabbing a, a pastry or that just randomly happen to sit next to uh, in the audience. And in his case, uh, this is a music producer. He has met other musicians to work with, graphic artists that he's ended up working with. And, and so we're ready to get back into that business of, you know everything we do is uh, at Charlotte's Creative is about putting people in connection with one another, um, and and generally our, our ultimate goal is to put creatives to work, and and Creative Mornings is one of the ways that we do that. In addition to our our, our other programs, yeah. So.
0: What is a recent project, Tim, that you're you're proud of? Something that you um, are currently. Excited about! I know things are are breaking out for Charlotte is creative. What what would you point us to?
1: I think what uh, Monday night is probably uh, our our latest thing. We've uh, with uh, support from Wells Fargo, we have undertaken what's called the Creative Entrepreneur Initiative. So we're we're doing this in partnership with them of thinking of creatives, individual gig creatives across the spectrum as small businesses. And we've been students of of grant culture for the last few years. And one thing we see is that oftentimes uh, creatives will get money, but not the direction on how to spend it. And so if you don't have business training or project management training, You get through your grant cycle. Did you spend it as efficiently as you could have? Did you use it to the extent that you could have? And where do you get the next one, right? How do you keep funding yourself? So this program pairs a $4,000 grant for a four month project for seven creatives. And then they also get to take 10 different project management courses ranging from time management to PR, to legal documents, um, to, uh, you know, budgeting and and then we're pairing them with a budgeting expert a pr uh council and a project management council for individual sessions so that not only will they be more successful in their next endeavor and with the one we're paying them to do but also that they're able to teach other people and and so that our goal is and i think you'll hear some of this out of tom in just a minute is helping creatives sustain themselves and be understood internally and externally in charlotte as really vital to not only quality of life, but also the business community
0: here. Oh, yeah. 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 Wonderful. And speaking of a Tom, he is here, our featured guest. Our featured guest is CEO and president of Blumenthal Performing Arts, Tom Gabbard. And we don't want to miss a minute of him. So, Tim, take it away. Well,
1: as uh, this is a real treat and an honor for me. And uh, I want to I want to give you everybody as much time with Tom as possible. But one thing to note about him is when you look at his official bio on the Blumenthal website, his bio as president and CEO, where he has served since 2003. The second line says the Blumenthal's 110 employees manage six theaters in Charlotte, hosting over a thousand performances annually, as well as extensive education programs. What I think you'll find is essential to Tom as he sees the people behind the work. The fact that it mentions in his bio that the Blumenthal employs 110 people, I think you will find is essential to who he is. Um, You know, Tom is a member of the Board of Governors of the Broadway League. He serves on the executive and finance committees. He's been a voter on the the Tony Award since 97. Um, And he holds an MBA in arts management from Golden Gate University, a BA in music performance from Pepperdine, Andy he also attended law school there. So, you know, he's not a no slacker. What for me and I'm, I, I want to lead in quickly to him. But for many years, Tom Gabbard was a name to me. He was somebody that I knew was doing incredible work, but I hadn't had the good fortune to work with. Um, and I thank you, Lou and, and Interact for giving me a chance to share My experience with Tom is over the last few years, especially during COVID, I've gotten to know the individual, the man behind the name and the title. I knew he was a leader within the Blumenthal, which is one of Charlotte's jewels of the cultural community, but I've gotten to know how he leads in big ways, small ways, subtle ways, and overt ways in our creative culture here. I've learned that he is a man who sees the macro. So when he sees the impact of COVID, he knows what that could do to cultural arts across the country, but the micro every show that was cancelled, he felt. He knew that people weren't working that actors weren't working stagecraft professionals weren't working and that got to him and I saw and was inspired by his very clear desire. uh, Manifest through his staff to put people to work during COVID. And that's something that at Charlotte's Creative, we took as a mantra to match Tom and at every corner try to put creatives to work uh, in a difficult economy. And so now it's my pleasure to introduce you to the man behind the name, Tom Gabbard. How you doing, Tom?
2: Great. <clears throat> wow. What an introduction. But let me just say the respect is so mutual with Tim and his work. Uh, they, they are doing such great things, and to partner with them on various projects has been a real honor for us.
1: All right, you're not supposed to get me choked up before I ask you questions, Tom, that's that's not fair. Um, well, let's jump in, because time is short. Tell us a little bit about your early beginnings, because I've been fortunate to hear these stories. How did you find yourself on a path toward the creative arts, and then how did that lead towards arts administration?
2: Well, first of all, I, I was very, very lucky to be born into an environment that nurtured that. And I will always be grateful that I, that I had a family, that I had a city, that I had teachers throughout my life that nurtured these things in me. And and it, I think points out the obligation that we all have to give back to nurture others. But, but I think I've always been wired to, to have a passion for the arts uh, and to try to be an instigator somebody who, who would take some responsibility to make things happen. But I think I've always been drawn to understand that the arts really has a profound impact on people uh, and that frequently we don't realize the lifelong uh, changes that are happening in, in, in people and the nurturing that happens through even small experiences in the classroom, in schools, and certainly throughout the community.
1: Tom, everything I see you do illuminates that, that you not only want people to be entertained or moved by what they see, but you want them to see the people, the mechanisms and the and the potential of of uh, creativity and particularly theater and performance to move people's hearts and minds. Um, And so that leads me to ask, you know, you had a very successful career in the arts prior to coming to Charlotte. And coming here in 2003, it's a, it was a very different city than it is today. What, what did you see when you were originally offered the position at, at the Blumenthal and what what's kept you here? What's kept you working and, and saying no to other offers?
2: Well, Charlotte has been a great fit for my wife and I. And and uh, you know, I, I will say when I was first recruited for the job, uh, I, I was reminded, my wife and I had been married for about 25 years then, and, and she, and I'd said, you know, we might have to move a few times for my work. And she said, I'll live any place but the South. And, and so when I got the call, I, I told Jim Hance, who was the board chair and back then vice chair of, of Bank of America, I, I told him that and he laughed and he said, yeah, I've, I've, I've heard that as time too. Why don't you and Vicky come to Charlotte and just spend a long weekend? And we came back in 2002 and immediately fell in love and, and realized then, even though it was a very different city, that this was an incredibly progressive place that was focused on making things happen for the community good. And, uh, and that's exactly the culture that Vicki and I wanted to be a part of. And throughout now 18 years, it's just gotten better and better. And we are so proud to be a part of this city.
1: Well, following up on that, uh, you know, I know one of the, you could have come in and worked on macro projects only, which you did, but uh, but I know you had a passion early to bring in different kinds of art, you know, art forms and disciplines, but also really drive exposure to cultural ex- uh, uh, experiences across this, the community. Can you tell us a little bit about what your passion was there and what some of the first moves you made to, to expand the notion of what the Blumenthal could be to Charlotte?
2: I mean, first of all, uh, you know, one of the early things we did that was structural, but but I thought the symbolism was really important, was, was that we made Tryon Street our front door. When Blumenthal was designed, Caesar Pelle designed it so that you parked in this, in this parking garage, went through this hermetically sealed um, skywalk, got your tickets in Founders Hall and one of the theaters and never had to go outside. And, and, and I, at the outset, just said, you know, maybe at one time that was necessary. I won't, I won't question Caesar's vision on this, but now we've got this vibrant downtown that can only get better. So we're going to make Tryon Street our front door and, and begin to try to connect ourselves. The, the other thing that I told the board early on that was a missing part of our program were, were small shows that played for an extended period of time that, that, that we were adept at bringing in the one-nighters and the one-week Broadway shows. But there was a niche for smaller shows that could be that Energizer Bunny. Uh, you know, we are very mindful of the fact that, that restaurants and hotels around us rely on our activity. And, you know, we're thankful for the, big, for the big things like Rolling Stones next week that'll bring in people for a night, but it's important for us to deliver activity that makes these places sustainable that's night after night after night. So we plunged in, you know, doing things like Forever Plaid was our first uh, uh, produced production that played for 10 weeks. And then Sheer Madness that went, I think 220 performances um so so that really began you know kind of repositioning us from this uh roadhouse of blockbuster shows to begin to experimenting with things that were actually even more connected just by the fact that they were here a lot
1: you know you tom you led precisely into where i wanted to go next by by illuminating what i said in my intro that you you see well beyond just how your actions or how the Blumenthal's actions affect the organization. And you look at how it affects businesses and individuals around you. And so that leads me to talk about something that I know you have a great passion for, which is social entrepreneurship, right? And and how it's how it's found its way into not only your life, but into into your organization's practices. That was something that you've been you know doing for a while. But in COVID, it really took flight. And so I'm going to ask, if you would share, what does social entrepreneurship mean to you? And then how do we see it in some of the recent work Blumenthal Performing Arts has done and some of your recent hires? Because I think they really manifest that that goal for you. They
2: do. And and, and I feel like we, we have a convergence now of, of things that, in many respects, makes our work here at Blumenthal even more important. Because... We, we have always been an entrepreneurial organization. We have always been focused on trying to create community good, but I think that focus on both uh, has actually been uh, made even greater the last few years and particularly during COVID that, that we're, you know, we're not unwilling to evaluate business opportunities and frankly, make money when we can make money so that we can turn around and invest it in the community. And so, so we, you know, we 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 had a grant uh, evaluator a few years ago from the North Carolina State Arts Council, who whose comment was, "What I love about this organization is that uh, that it thinks like a nonprofit, but it acts like a for-profit." And and he said that as a compliment that uh, that we bring the entrepreneurial skills, and and frankly. A very strong commitment to good business practices, good marketing, all those things, but all with the goal of making the community stronger and doing good in the community. So, <clears throat> a, a, a good example that's this right in front of us uh, now that that has been just an unbelievable success has been Immersive Van Gogh. That's a, a especially in COVID <clears throat> was an incredibly ambitious thing for us to take on. Um, and you know when when our Canadian partner who created the production uh, when he first called me in July of 2020 uh, to talk to me about the success, interestingly, as he called all of my peers across the country, not a single person would even return his call, let alone uh, talk to him, because everybody was scared to death, and rightfully so. You know, if you ran a big performing arts center. Then the, then the dominant strategy was just lay everybody off go into hibernation and when it's safe to come out you rehire and 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 we we honestly tried to avoid that tact and to look at opportunities uh, that would help us to reactivate and and and, and the, with the top goal of putting people back to work and so so immersive Van Gogh was one of those projects <clears throat> that, that that we found. Had some potential. We couldn't get a hold of any shows, you know. No, nobody was touring, be it be it theater or concerts. Nobody was touring, so we needed to look at some alternatives. So when I went to the board about this project uh, in December and January, uh, a little bit of February, we were right at the height of the pandemic, right? <clears throat> and Blumenthal, for a you know a period of time, was incurring substantial losses because. We, we hadn't laid everybody off. Uh, so we were we still had a fairly high payroll because we were trying to hold on to people. So even after all those losses, I went to the board and said, you know, this looks really interesting. Uh, it's gonna be a few million risk, uh, and uh, but I think it could work. But most of all, it's gonna get people back to work. And that was our top three goals were to get people back to work, number two, to begin to reactivate audiences, and third, to manage the risk so that we at least broke even. But, but the jobs piece was really front and center. And um, and and I'm just so thankful that our board had the courage in the midst of the pandemic to say, not only we're we gonna do it, but we understand there's some financial risks that goes along with it. Um, and And so, you know, from that, over 200 people were hired. Uh, our IA stagehands had a call that went a month long to install all of the digital equipment. Um, so a lot of jobs were created. I, I will say in the process too, we had an opportunity to create a more diverse staff because our goal coming out of the pandemic was to, was to create more diversity in our team. And that created an opportunity with new hiring to, to be able to do that. So now here, here we are, uh, at about 240,000 people that have been through uh, to see immersive van go. We are gonna close at the end of October um, uh, because frankly, we, 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 we love doing what we wanna do. The Ford building was a great choice for this, but we wanna find another place where it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not an older building quite like that uh, that has a little more infrastructure to it, we've had to bring in all of the in- infrastructure, but but again, it's it, I think it's an example uh, of a nonprofit that was willing to lean in, take some financial risk, realize that as a business decision, it's uh, it, it 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 was a challenging business decision. We we did the whole thing in four months, from saying yes to opening the doors, uh, building it all out, marketing it, and everything. So. But we leaned into it, knowing that it was our best hope that we could find to get people back to work.
1: You know, it's truly remarkable. And for those that are on the uh, on the zoom that and it's unlikely, given the numbers of people that have been to virtual Van Gogh. But if you haven't been, it's a camp north end. Um, It had the the immersive Van Gogh experience itself is remarkable and unlike anything you've ever experienced. But but also those you know you were saying, Tom. the. Your your desire to to treat your nonprofit like a for profit in many ways and embrace entrepreneurship has found its way into what's on the outer parts of you know the what surrounds immersive Van Gogh with your your artist residency programs and uh, and all of that. It, could you speak just for a minute because I've got two more questions about what went into that?
2: Yeah, because in fact that that is one of the things we're most proud of uh, is what surrounds. Uh, the exhibit itself and the way that it's that it's utilized local artists in this and I will say uh, it's totally unique to Charlotte so so this particular immersive Van Gogh uh, is is slated to open in 20 American cities uh, and probably more than that we're the only city that developed this local artist component and and made the investment in the surrounding space because I took the position that look I I want to make, I want the outside that surrounds it to be just as good as the inside. So let's really lean into this. So we've had, uh, you know, first of all, Bree Stallings came onto our staff and did just an incredible job of designing everything that surrounds it. So if you go there and you see the tapestries and other things, that's all Bree Stallings, a a huge mural that she painted uh, on a wall that it was a wall that was all chewed up. We had to do something about it because it had huge hole, huge holes in it. And and Brie created this incredible mural. But 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 we have three artists in residence. Uh, other cities, you know, they 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 are able to get one artist usually. Frequently, sometimes they even have a stretch coming up with one artist. But these artists are paid. We pay them, um, I think it's eight hundred dollars a week to to show up for 40 hours a week, plus then they actually can sell. So in addition to what we pay them, they also have an opportunity to sell. Um, We've we've had artists, you know, it was a a big uh, effort to animate even the outside. So if you go, you'll see 14 picnic tables that have been painted uh, all of Van Gogh. We paid local artists to do that. And that's part of a program afterwards when we're finished we're actually going to gift those into the community into neighborhoods that are art deserts uh, to, to bring some art there um but but beyond that we have we have artists that made things that are being sold uh in merch and we've got about an eight thousand square foot uh, uh merch area and many of the things you'll see there are actually created by local artists as I said, the the show is going to be in about 20 other cities. Now, those artists' work is being purchased uh, to be used in those other cities. So, uh, I, I you know I think some of our artists are like, "How do I deal with all this demand? I've got all these orders. How do I deal with it?" Uh, which is a nice problem to have. <laughs> uh, and we've offered you know to help them uh, with money if they need help with cash flow and those kinds of things. But even after the show closes here, because of all these other cities that ramp up after us, there will be a residual benefit to all these artists, and it's it's significant. I, I, our first month, I think the royalty check or the percentage that went to those local artists just for merch um, was over sixty thousand dollars just for that single incredible. month.
1: That's incredible, I, and and that I think it's it's a a great example of you putting um showing how how uh art and culture and art institutions um can think beyond their own walls and and make it work for the entire community if if it's okay with you tom we're going to go to 1135 because i've got uh just a few more questions for you one is you took a huge risk on on van gogh because it it, you're right at a point where conventional wisdom was lay people off or focus on the our bread and butter you did something that even in a good year you know, without COVID would be challenging. Did that risk pay off? Did you find new audiences, people that maybe weren't accustomed to coming to Blumenthal performances prior? It,
2: it, it has paid off uh, and I'll explain. I, I do wanna back up to give some credit to our, our federal government that created a program called Shuttered Venue Operating Grant. And that, that money is available uh, Uh, And and our friends at the the Neighborhood Theater and Evening Muse were very much at the forefront of getting Congress to approve that. That that money, in part, was to encourage people to actually create new things, to help restart. It wasn't just patching the holes of the losses they took, but to incentivize. And so that was part of my conversation with our board. And I just said, look, if I've really misjudged this and we lose a few million on this, Shuttered Venue is our is our backstop. <clears throat> and Congress approved this money to incentivize us to get in the game and not sit on the sidelines. So, so but going to expand in the audience, this is one of the fascinating things, uh, is that of those nearly 240,000 people that have been through, over 80% are, are what we call new to file, people who have not bought a ticket from Blumenthal before which is pretty incredible because we have this big database that not only covers Blumenthal shows, but we sell tickets for neighborhood theater, the visualites, all sorts of folks, Theater Charlotte. So, so we have a really diverse database. And even with that in mind, over 80% of the folks coming uh, are, are new. So fingers crossed, we can continue to build that relationship that this is just the entry point and, and also I think you know, important for us to acknowledge that in spite of the big names and things that we had, they hadn't bought a ticket before. It took something different. And so our experimenting to find what the next different things are uh, is important to keep those people energized. <laughs>
1: I mean to to have done that at such a difficult time is is absolutely remarkable and I know that also you you had a pretty the, just going to immersive van Gogh, the audience is so diverse and so, and so and it's such an accessible thing especially with the outer exhibit you know being being free to the public um so just an amazing effort That said, back to back to more traditional forms of theater, because this last few weeks has been significant. I know you to be somebody that despises quiet, dark, unused stages, even in the best of markets. So you've had you've had a quiet year. What was it like for Wicked, uh, which is open through October the third? What was it like to open uh, Wicked at Ovens earlier this month and, and welcome Broadway back to Charlotte?
2: well it's it's it, it, we're having a great experience it's the culmination of a year and a half of very hard work so let me say uh you know it, it wasn't wasn't a quiet year in terms of the zoom and all of that i'm i'm part of a brain trust group with the broadway league that leaned in to figure out how we reactivated not just uh broadway but tours uh they're actually i'll just share with you confidentially there was there was a time where we were actually going to have Wicked here as kind of a bubble project, with, like the NBA did. That's how far in the weeds we were to try to figure out the health protocols and things uh, necessary to restart these shows, uh, zooming with people all over the world. I was part of a COVID theater think tank group and actually chaired the committee on rapid testing. Which, when I first started talking about rapid testing in June of 2020, and and strategies that would rapid testing as a part of our protocols backstage everybody was like rapid what and now i'll tell you backstage that that actually now is becoming the dominant uh strategy is that we're testing everybody uh every day or two so it's you know the, the energy in the room those audiences that are so glad to be back is just beyond belief uh i mean i i it's I have to discipline myself to not be there every day uh, because people are so glad to be back. And the respect of the rules, you know, masking is is really an integral part of this. And and we learned that from the Koreans back when I, I led a group from the Broadway League of about 90 that took a deep dive into Korean theater where big shows have played through the pandemic. And, and I learned back in May 2020 that they were able to do that because of universal masking. Mm-hmm. And, and we said, look, great strategy for them. Americans will never do it. Uh, and back then, Americans wouldn't do it. I will say now, at least theater goers, they are really respectful. We have not had a single uh, case with, with Wicked or Charlotte Squawks uh, of, of people resisting that. And even in an immersive Van Gogh, we've adopted that strategy. Uh, we we've, we've had one resistor, and uh, we could have probably picked him out. His T-shirt said Psych Ward on it.
1: <laughs> yeah, that that one probably you could have seen coming. So people, you know, people
2: people are are glad to be back, and and they understand now that it was taken away. That 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 it is a privilege. It's. It's a privilege to be together to enjoy these shows and so so I think people walk into that theater and respect the rules, acknowledging that it's a privilege we don't want to see taken away.
1: well, privilege is a great word to end on it's been a it's been a privilege to to lead this conversation with you and have a chance to 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 share you with with this audience and how you think Tom, you are an incredible leader um, and and someone who uh not only sees the big picture, but loves the people that are part of it. Thank you for everything that you do for Charlotte. I wish we could keep talking, but it's, it's 1135 and time to turn it back over to Lou. So thank you for, for coming today.
2: Thank you, Tim.
0: Oh oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Tom Gabbard. We are so blessed by you and your team and your vision for 18 years. And I don't think people uh, in, by and large understand the reach and the impact on so many different levels of Blumenthal performing arts. And similarly, Tim, you and Matt are uh, in a like-minded side of the world with Tom. And, and we're just so grateful for, for all three of you and the people that work with you all the time. It's been our deep pleasure Next up on October 7th, we have Varian Shrum, who is the manager of Camp North End's community. And will tell us a little bit about how that came to be. If you have not been lately, it is happening. So once again, Tom, Tim, I know Matt is driving. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. And for all of you, thank you for coming today and staying a little extra so that we could get more time. Take care. Thank you, Lou. Yes. Bye.
2: Thank you, Lou.
0: Yes. Bye now.